We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. My name is Jari Bolander. Welcome to the Entrepreneur Ethos Podcast. On this podcast, we're going to take a deep dive into the traits, values, beliefs, and skills of all sorts of entrepreneurs to learn how to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient world. Let's get started. Hey, everyone. Stay tuned to the end of the interview, where I'll give you some actionable insights that I learned from my guest. These insights are also in the show notes. As always, thanks for listening. Thanks for all the rating and reviews. If you do like the show, I really would appreciate a rating and review on Spotify or Apple. It means a ton to me. So thanks for that. Now, on to my guest for today, Peter Goldstein of Exchange Listing. He helps companies go public. Peter admits that what he does now isn't something he could have planned out. He started out in the restaurant industry in New York, but he says has always been an entrepreneur, picking up odd jobs when he was a kid to earn money. He bought his first business at the age of 24 when, seeing an opportunity, he took it. Now Peter draws on decades of experience in helping emerging growth companies enter public markets. For entrepreneurs who are at this stage of growth, you might want to find someone like Peter to help you navigate this complex process of going public. Peter explains that there are lots of opportunities right now for companies to access capital on the public markets. His task is to evaluate whether or not the company is ready to go public, analyzing it from a number of angles, both quantitative and qualitative. At times, he works with companies for a year or more to help them prepare for this next step. And just as a company needs to know its ideal customer and how to tell their story, so does a company need to craft their story for potential investors. Now, let's get better together. Peter Goldstein, welcome to the podcast. Jari, thanks for having me. Great to, uh, to talk with you again and look forward to a uh, uh, you know, really dynamic conversation this morning. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're one of those kind of guys that I really love to talk to because you all know about the financial money stuff. And I get ask these questions all the time. And I'm like, I have no clue how this stuff works. It's like, I should 
get some people that are smarter than me in this. And you happen to run a company called Exchange Listing. You do a lot of great, you're like an IPO advisor. You help people go public with their companies, among other things. And you have all these just really great, unique stories about how that process happens, why it's important. Um, and we actually got introduced uh, through Phil over at uh, Billionaires and Boxers, which is really cool. I love love what he's doing. And uh, I know you do as well. And I was just so thankful that he connected us up so we could have this great conversation about money and finance and all the cool stuff in between. So uh, before, but before we get to do that, like I always love to say, why don't you uh, tell us how you got to do what you're doing today? Great, great. So it, it's it's for me even even that's like a great opening question because it's I'm 58, right, Jari? So I've I've had you know a very dynamic career, very interesting career uh, with a lot of twists and turns, and and it really was not something that I could have planned perfectly to end up where I am today. Like, you know, when I started my career and I was interested in business and then interested in finance, uh, this just happened to evolve naturally. Uh, it, it would have been very difficult to have a master plan to end up where I am. Uh, and and it's unfolded over the course of, of different aspects of my career. When I was in my 20s, uh, I started a food business. It's totally unrelated to what I'm doing now. I was living in New York City, I was starting a career in the restaurant industry, and I realized I didn't want to be in restaurant management and work, you know, 80 hours a week. And I had an opportunity then to uh, work with uh, a company that uh, was in the process of going out of business, and there was a void in the market. So it was an opportunity that I saw in my 20s and was looking for the next career. Always, I've been an entrepreneur, I think, since I was, you know, kind of in diapers, right? And and so. Starting my, my entrepreneurial career, my 24th birthday, I went to City Hall on Center Street in Manhattan and got my first official business license. Wow. So at 24, to say, okay, you know, 30 some odd years later, 34 years later, that to have planned to be a merchant banker and an IPO and a public company advisor and working with companies all over the globe, uh, I can clearly tell you was not a master plan, um, but I have no regrets, wouldn't trade it for the world. I love what I do. Um, and for the, uh, for the most part, like every business has its pros and cons, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but I get to work with dynamic companies, emerging growth companies, and really at this stage, get to focus on value creation and, and execution uh, so that not only am I bringing value to the companies, uh, to the CEOs, to the board of directors, but we're focused on deliverables and performance. And in, in my belief, to answer your question in a kind of roundabout way, how I came to what I'm doing now has been always about performance and execution. And no matter what I was doing, it all led to this stage, which I believe in any career, everything you do will add value and provide more context to where you end up. Um, but it was always focused on value creation and, and execution. Hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> wow. Yeah. That's a, uh... That's a great, I love, I love from restaurants to like IPOs. Yeah, it's a... <laughs> <laughs> And yeah, it's funny because like, you know, people always say, well, are, are you born an entrepreneur? Or are you created an entrepreneur? Are there circumstances in your life that make you an entrepreneur? And you, you, you mentioned that you've been an entrepreneur since you've been in diapers, essentially. Has your, was your family in, in, in any of your family entrepreneurs or 
I don't even not really directly. I, okay. I couldn't even, you know, point necessarily to that. It, it it just was something like you said, maybe, you know, born in and ingrained inside of me. Um, you know, my family's middle class. We grew up in in the suburbs of New York. Um, you know, I think my dad had my dad had some entrepreneurial spirit, but also had, you know, had a career. Um, but I just liked making money and, and applying, then having that money to, you know, I can remember, you know, the, the usual stuff when you're a kid, you know, the paper route, you know, mowing lawns, you know, uh, shoveling snow in the winter, you know, it just went on and on and on. Um, so as far back as I can really remember. Uh, and I think it was always because we didn't have a lot of money, but it was nice. You know, my mom used to have this saying, you know, rich or poor, it's good to have money. And so I think I always enjoyed, you know, having the money and I didn't mind working hard for it. Yeah. No, I mean, it's interesting because like my, my first job was like a paper route and it, you know, I, I remember like I got, it was either that job or the job when I worked at McDonald's and I realized, oh, I thought I made this much money and then taxes came and I'm like, taxes, what's this taxes thing? You know, it was like my first experience with like the workforce. Um, and what I found interesting about that is that the people that I've talked to that have had that really early on experience working for whatever reason, it's just either for whatever circumstance. I mean, we were saying we were, you know, lower middle-class dad had a job, mom worked, but you know, like pocket money was sort of up to us, (laughs) you know? Um, and it's just interesting because I think as you start like early on with that, you get over a lot of the kind of challenges of what it is to be an entrepreneur. And you mentioned performance was a big one. Like we just go in and create value and perform. And so when, when, you know, there is a lot of this activity going on right now, a lot of these SPACs, a lot of people going public, I mean, just insane amount of evaluations and all these companies. And so can you talk us, talk us through a little bit about how that kind of process works and, in 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 your and in, in your you know experience how 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 do how does it all work because i don't know <laughs> i always thought it was like you know i i lived through the dot bombs right like the 2000s and it was like yeah we'll make it up on volume i'm like you're not making any money <laughs> how do you make it up on volume with zero times zero is still zero <laughs> or Correct. a million times zero whatever you know what i mean i'm being facetious though yeah, it, it, it's, a, it's a wide open kind of playing field for companies who want to secure growth capital. That that to me is, you know, to the heart of this, which is if you're an entrepreneurial company and you're looking to secure growth capital to build your company and to fill upon your vision, uh, you know, you have to have access to resources. Right. You know, you need human resources, which typically starts with the founder or the co-founder, uh, you know, those that are close to you that you can bring. And then typically there's some seed round of maybe friends and family rounds of capital. But at a certain point, uh, most companies need to then start to reach outside of their circles for securing growth capital. And <clears throat> in an emerging growth scenario where you really have a dynamic business, it's going to be hungry for capital in order to grow. Uh, because the growth and the potential for expansion is is baked into the definition of an emerging growth company. And then so you have one route, which would be to go into the private capital markets. You know, you could look at private equity firms, you look at venture capital firms, you could look at angel groups, so to speak. Um, and then the other route, which is really just where I ended up going, it wasn't, again, like a, a master plan. But now, of course, because I've spent 25 to 30 years inside of the capital markets, 
and let's call it the public access or public capital uh, that now when I look at securing growth capital, it's focused on having a company with a liquidity event. And that liquidity event is really a, a listing uh, somewhere uh, to be public so that the shares have liquidity and that investors have the ability to trade the stock or to liquidate or to use the stock as another currency as opposed to a private company that doesn't have those benefits. Yeah. So, so really the difference being, so yeah, I mean, I'm familiar with venture capital where go to Sand Hill Road, pitch your deck, you know, give you a term sheet or not give you a term sheet. Then, you know, you have this funny money evaluation and they give you a bunch of money. <clears throat> then you use it to grow. And this, this exit, we call it exit, obviously, I'm sure you guys do as well. This exit event is when they get their liquidity. And of course, they've got preferential shares and, you know, everything the investors always get paid first. <laughs> and if there's any leftover for the founders is what they get. Um, and that was just like the traditional way. And usually I remember when I used to like see a lot of these a while ago, it was because the fundamentals of the company were there. They had the the money, the growth or whatever, but it seems like it's like you, I think you mentioned a little bit changing a little bit where there seems to be more access to public money quote unquote, I think that's, I think the way you put it, then there used to be before what, what's been the shift? Because from what I remember, it was like a really high bar to go IPO as an example. Correct. Correct. And, and in a lot of ways, traditionally there still is that high bar, but what's changed is that there's just, it's a very robust market, Jerry. So mm -hmm. that means that there's more capital looking for places to deploy and so there are different levels of emerging growth companies or different levels of investment opportunities. You know, uh, there's early stage, which of course is going to be much higher risk. Uh, so that might be one category of, of investors uh, when you're entering the public markets, of course, you know, and that depends also on the size and the market cap of the company. There are a lot of ingredients or variables that go into, you know, which kind of pools of capital, but the, the to me, the money that's flowing uh, is flowing more of like public company venture capital as opposed to private company venture capital. Oh, okay. Where investors are willing to take uh, a risk on earlier stage companies, kind of, you know, betting on the sense that it'll be the Google of 10 years from now or five years from now. Every company that went public had to start somewhere. Right. And, and some started, you know, when they were much more mature with much larger valuations. Now with the onset of number one, I think technology and the fact that, listen, our economy right now is supporting very large valuations, as is the capital markets, uh, is, is bringing more companies to market earlier because they have an opportunity to attract capital at much higher valuations. It used to be if you didn't have a certain bar, let's call it a hundred million in revenue and, you know, 20% of EBITDA that, you know, you wouldn't even attract an underwriter. Now, yeah. you know, we're able to take pre-revenue companies to do a small IPO, like a micro IPO. Wow. Yeah. And, and, and wow. even the SPAC, yeah, wow. Right. So, and <laughs> and totally the SPAC different. boom, yeah. like the SPAC boom, Jari has also brought a lot of this on and where companies that would not before have thought about going public, well, when a SPAC knocks on your door and says, hey, you know, I've got several hundred million dollars sitting in the in, in, in escrow, we'd like to take you public. People are paying attention and they're doing those deals. So, 
access to capital, access to liquidity, access to to entering the market sooner uh, has brought about a lot of those changes. Where's all the money coming from? Really great question. <laughs> Ooh, you know, good. What's, yeah, it's fun. So yeah. you know, because there's this there's this new development in 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 Wall Street with the retail markets, meaning you know mm. individual investors, everything from you know millennials you know on up um, who now are trading on their own. You've seen lots of buzz around this, right? Oh like, yeah, the, the GameStop stuff. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, AMC, and, and yeah. all the crypto, the crypto things are oh. going on. Yeah, crypto. It's really nuts. really fascinating because. Those are not typical Wall Street investors. Hmm. And the estimate now, Ajari, is about 20% of, of liquidity that's coming into the capital markets comes from retail wow. as an estimate. Wow. It's fascinating, right? Wow. So you know, really? now you can go on your on your you know on your phone and you have an app and you just, you know, you're 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 placing an order or you're selling or buying and selling and you're in and out of your stocks, just like these kids used to watch YouTube or when I say kids, these you know, this this generation, uh, it would maybe before be watching YouTube, uh, now they're trading stocks. And so Man. that's a new phenomenon over the last couple of years, right? Two, three years that you know, maybe call it many as four or five years, but now it really is relevant where you're seeing that if there is a company or even a, a, a movement that that generation of let's call electronic, you know, kind of trading that comes from the retail side gets behind, it's powerful. And as yeah. to the tradition, which was institutional investors. So you'd yeah. have, again, varying degrees of institution, most of where I do my work would be family offices, hmm. um, special purpose funds, uh, and, and certain institutions that have an allocation of capital for kind of earlier stage emerging growth companies within certain sectors or certain business parameters. So it is really a blend. Uh, there's no, you know, one answer to your question of where's the money coming from. It's coming from a, um, you know, I think a, a variety of sources. Uh, based upon the stage and the development of the company and where it is along its journey route. Wow. 20% is retail. Isn't that amazing? That's it's insane. Well, these are all these meme stocks that we hear about, right? Like GameStop and AMC, where you're like, they're really driving that kind of you know volume and valuation and, and price and all that. And it's I think it's like a revolution, actually, because some of these institutional folks have been sort of doing this in the background. It feels to me, I don't know, the total speculation that they've sort of been manipulating this stuff for a long time anyway, because I mean, I know like in a mutual fund, there's certain rules where they have to say, okay, look, we're going to buy huge positions of this because of some regulation or whatever. But some of these meme stocks, you just see like, you know, within days, like GameStop was like, trading it up below a buck and now it's up at a hundred and some ridiculous amount of money, but it's like the market quote unquote, the market valuates it that way. And I, I, what do you think of all this? I mean, is it, is this like a bubble? Do you think, I mean, I don't think the trading is a bubble in the sense that I think that this mechanism now of electronic trading and easy access through your mobile or through, you know, the internet with the ability to trade and, and create, you know, interest from buyers who are making small trades. 
uh, I think that's here to stay. Uh, the the you know one offs that are are you know high flyers that's always been on Wall Street. Uh, and then there's that's a whole psychology to all of that, which is, you know, people buy into, you know, not even the fundamentals of the company because there are, may not even be any fundamentals, but the excitement, the buzz, the, the, you know, not wanting to miss out, you know, the, the, the FOMO, right. And, and, mm-hmm. you know, the different components that come along with the psychological aspects of trading. So no, I don't think it's going away. Um, I'm a little old school because I like fundamentals. I believe in in sizzle. I believe in excitement. I believe in momentum in the markets. You know all those other things, but when the day is done, I look for fundamentals. You know, is there a core business here? Is does the business have the ability to really grow and scale uh, and give returns to the investors based on more than just you know sizzle and hype, so to speak? Yeah. Yeah. Well, what are some of those fundamentals? Are they just like the old school ones or are there new ones that, that need to be looked at? Because it seems to me that, I mean, it just, I guess, depends on the business model of the company, but what, what are some of the fundamentals that you look for? And then also, are those the fundamentals like <clears throat> when a company comes to you and says, hey, we want to do some sort of public offering, do you sort of like walk through your like mental checklist of, okay, is this a meme stock? <laughs> Do I really want to be involved with this thing? Or like, take us through the process of that. Cause I really think a lot of entrepreneurs, again, I, I get asked this question a lot because there's just so much out there. I mean, it, yeah. it just seems like there's way more money and way more like, I wouldn't call it nefarious stuff, but it's just so it's changing so rapidly. It's hard to keep track of. Yeah, agreed. So different. I think you said it well, Troy. There's different metrics or different markers for different businesses. You know, there's no one size fits all. With the exception of the first one to me, which is the management team. Mm. So in the world of fundamentals, to me, it starts with who is management. And and trust me, I was an entrepreneur in my 20s. I didn't have a track record. You know, I had my first exit at 30. I'd never done that before. So it couldn't be like somebody would say, wow, I'm betting on this guy because he's got a track record. But it was based upon my experience, my then drive, you know, my motivation, what I had done up to date. And so I always start with management. You know, what's their background? What's their experience? uh, What are their successes to date? Uh, And equally as important to me are what are their losses? Uh, You know, a true entrepreneur is going to have as many failures, you know, potentially as he has wins. And so those are, are a lot of what I look for, uh, not just all the good, you know, surface things, but, you know, what really makes up the, the team of management. And then there's skills. For us, when a company is looking to enter the capital markets, you have to have a certain set of criteria, hmm. uh, you know, including the CEO, a, a CFO who's got a background and a knowledge of, you know, SEC and financial reporting, gap reporting. So there are certain skill criteria, but the rest really is then driven upon management's vision Mm. and then their ability to articulate that vision and show a roadmap with a set of assumptions that they've developed that are unique to their business. And those markers or criteria that would be unique to their business. And basically saying, if I was given the capital, this is where I can take the company. And then we begin to unravel that and analyze that and really determine if it's a viable company for the capital markets. Some are, some aren't. Um, and, and some are the future viabilities of that. So we get in very early. I have no problem in, in, in working with a company a year, year and a half, sometimes two years wow. uh, before they're ready. Uh, because there's a lot that goes into being fully prepared. 
uh, you know, and, and that's a whole, you know, different kind of discussion. But in relation to what do we look for, uh, I would say about 40% of our business are companies that are private and want to go public for the first time. Uh, the balance, 60% of companies are already public where they've gone public in one way, shape, or form somewhere in the world, but now they're ready to kind of graduate to the next level. Hmm. So then we do a much more technical analysis on what are the listing requirements in both cases for reaching, let's, I'm going to use NASDAQ as an example. Mm -hmm. And there are qualitative criteria, meaning, you know, the valuation, the shareholder equity, the number of shareholders, shares in the float, you know, very technical analysis. And then there's a qualitative which is equally, if not to me, as important, more important per se than the quantitative, which is who are the members of the officers and the directors? Again, their background, their criteria, but then you're setting up corporate governance. You're putting in place committees and boards and systems and controls to make sure that the company you know, is really looking after the interest of its shareholders. Anna, my guess is you also have to sort of tell the story about why someone should invest, you know, absolutely. Like, uh, so big portion, big portion of that. And not just telling the story, but then supporting the story. Right. Right. And that's the fun stuff. Sorry. I get to work with, you know, company cause I'm a generalist. Mm-hmm. So we have clients all over the world. Um, you know, uh, I'm currently in Europe this morning. I was talking with a company in Greece and talking with another company in Southeast Asia, one in the pharmaceutical industry, one in e-commerce, you know, everyone is very, very different. Um, but prior to bringing them to the financial community, we work with them to craft the story mm. and then to present the story in a fashion that is kind of known to Wall Street. So, mm. you know, you always want to tell a story. You're a storyteller. So yep. you want to do it to your audience, right? So right. Who, who are you addressing? In this case, when we're working with the entrepreneurs and the CEO and the management, we're saying, okay, you're addressing the investment banking community first and foremost. Because one of our critical roles is to attract an underwriter mm. and or a group of investors that come together with that to take an interest in wanting to capitalize and provide growth capital. Mm. Because without the growth capital, companies aren't going to be able to fulfill their mission. Right? Right, 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 right. So telling the story in such a way that it is then packaged as well. Uh, is a whole, you know, aspect of what we do that uh, in any business, I know you have this with, you know, what you do here in the talk show and other aspects of your business. Uh, so much of it is just critical to getting the story, communicating it in such a way that it's effective and that then it is compelling enough to have people want to take action. Yeah, I always say clear, concise, and compelling. I think if you can hit those three constantly, consistently with who you're talking to, that that's, I think, probably the genius of it all because people are distracted and busy. And I mean, like, so do you just, this is really interesting. So you're going to get an underwriter An underwriter is the one that sort of puts up the money to make the whole thing go. I think they're sort of like floated or whatever. And correct me if I'm wrong, I'm probably going to butcher it. And my guess is there's not a ton of those type of people on some of these exchange, or they're the same people are on the exchanges or that do the deals. I mean, you know, there's probably, I don't know, investment banks and whatnot that will basically be the, that the company has to convince to either underwrite and then, okay, we're going, we're, we're, we're part of the team. 
are there just like a handful of people that you sort of have to convince or are there now more and more people that are kind of getting into the game? Well, it's, it's, a, it's also a, you know, an interesting topic because depends on, so it's a small community, uh, you know, wall street by itself, you know, after you've been in it for a while, you start to realize, uh, you know, there, there is a, a unique set of, of characteristics and people and firms, but it also depends on the tier. I don't deal with tier one. I'm not going, I'm not bringing my companies to Goldman Sachs. Okay. Oh, uh, really? <laughs> yeah. Surprise, surprise, you know, news bulletin. News bulletin, uh, you right? know. <laughs> so, so take away tier one from my world. Okay. Then cool. you have tier two and you have tier three. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that is driven by the size of the company when they go to market. Right. Uh, right. The valuation, sorry, uh, and then the amount of capital. You know, if they're looking to raise, you know, 50 to 100 million, I'm not, they're, they're going to fall into a tier two bracket. If they're looking to raise 15 to 20 or 25, we have to go a little bit downstream. So a big portion of my value is matching up mm. the right underwriter and then the right company and the right size and stage of development. And then, yes, we identify them. We qualify their interest. And I'm doing that, that right now for a, a, a very unique uh, roll-up strategy of a company that's going to be working in the psychedelic space. Oh, cool. Definitely we're, want to talk we're about then, that. Right. So we're finding <laughs> and interviewing potential underwriters that would meet the size and criteria. Uh, and then we have to present to them uh, a compelling, I love what you said, a clear, uh, concise, and compelling story where then it's a two-way, almost like I look at it like it's uh, you're interviewing, you know, uh, uh, like in the dating pool before you're, you're, you're <laughs> going to make a commitment to each other. Yeah, uh, this is this is this is bigger than swipe left and swipe right. This is yeah, a little yeah, bit more no, in depth, old school. You know, no doubt, exactly. We talk a little bit. <laughs> yeah, there, and there are some swiping left and right. Those are the quick yeses and nos when they're not prepped. Right, 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 right. right, right, and, right. and that's the guys who think, oh, I can do this on my own. I can yeah. go find no problem. You know, no piece way. of cake. You know, I got this. I'm the next Bill Gates. Okay, great. Um, and Even Bill Gates had guys like you. All of them, because it's a unique skill set that you cannot screw up. It's like getting the why would you why would you incorporate your company without a lawyer? It's the same thing, right? I mean, uh, well, yeah, okay. When you first start out and you're like, I don't have any money, okay. Well, but when you're at the point where we're talking millions and millions of dollars, like, what's uh, you know? I'm sorry I interrupted you because I just wanted to bring that up that like. Hire the talent it. you need. <laughs> don't, well, uh, don't mess around with that. I think you and I, because, you know, we're maybe a little older when we were younger, you think oh, I can do this all on my own. Oh, you know, sure, the yeah. ego kicks in, you know, sure. I got this, you know, sure. uh, no problem. And then you you hit a few walls. I think after you hit enough walls and you get enough bruises and scars and scabs, you know, enough, enough, um, you know, kind of scar tissue, you say, ah, maybe there's a better way to do this. Yeah, and uh, yeah. I know that was at least part of my journey, but um you know, in relation to the underwriter aspect, it's really, it, it's, it's fascinating because each underwriter then will have his own value proposition, his own area of interest. You may have one that's got a med tech desk, another one that has a, you know, we're in the middle of doing electric vehicle deal right now. So we had to basically find a bank that had an interest in that area, but also had investors that were interested in that, you know, field and sector of the investments, you know, for right. early stage companies. So, you know, that's all part of this process of being able to kind of match up the company with the right underwriter. 
and I like to advise my clients, you know, number one, don't take the first offer. Um, you know, number two, you're marrying in a sense, this, this underwriter for a period of time, they're going to yeah. do your initial public offering. They're going to have the rights to work with you for 12 to 18 months thereafter. Wow. So you really have to feel that they're going to be your champion. And, and, you know, if you have a champion as an investment banker who says, okay, we believe in management, we believe in the company, we vetted it, we've done our due diligence, uh, we're willing to put our name on this. Now you're, now you're in the game. Yep. Cooking with gas for sure. Wow, man, this, I got so many questions. <laughs> this is just so cool. Well, we may I, need another hour. Well, like, or may, yeah, or definitely some, and some other, some other time where we, we talk more about, cause I've always like, it's fascinated me, but I've always, it's always so confusing and honestly scary. I'm, this is like, you know, y'all deal with like tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars. Like it's nothing. It's like, Oh, rounding error. We did this, you know, like it, those are the, this isn't like, Oh, I'm buying a house or whatever. This is like, you know, we're pulling a deal together. That's worth hundreds, if not, you know, tens to hundreds of millions of dollars. And that's just, that's just a Tuesday. <laughs> for you guys, well, you know? well, you know, I'll be, I'll be, you know, again, like just very, um, you know, kind of transparent with you here. Like, but it's not for me, like another Tuesday, like for example, on Monday, this Monday, wasn't just another Monday. We had a client, um, that we, we did a small IPO of five, $6 million. Oh, okay. So they're not all, they're not all tens and hundreds. Okay. Um, and, and they're already public, but we, we did a, a, a true initial IPO with them and it was Monday and we got to ring the bell. Uh, virtual bell. Oh, cool. And and that's like not every normal Monday. Like I still like, I get <laughs> okay. the butterflies, the jitters and I'm oh, like, yeah. this is the coolest thing. Like I'm yeah. so, I'm blessed to be able to participate in that. Yeah. And, and, you know, then don't take any of it, of course, for granted because, mm-hmm. you know, we work really hard. The, the, the work that we do is very much kind of what makes me unique. And I would say separates me from, you know, whatever might be my competition, um, is that we're very hands-on. I roll up my mm. sleeves. We, I got a whole team around me. We dig in. Um, and then we're shoulder to shoulder with the entrepreneur. So yeah. their wins are our wins, you know, and vice versa. And, and so, you know, Monday we listed an e-commerce and fintech company on a Canadian exchange called the Neo, mm. which is a tier one exchange in Canada, mm. very entrepreneurial platform. And, uh, you know, we've been with this company for, for over a year, their model is uh, e-commerce and fintech uh, in Southeast Asia. Mm. Uh, so uh, really cool stuff. Like they are almost like a Shopify, if you know that, for mm-hmm. uh, yeah. for Southeast Asia and and for um, working with emerging growth um, companies and small you know retail shops and an online presence in one of the most fascinating markets you know I think in the world. Oh yeah, it's, it's just it's insane out there. Like what's going on? I mean. Not obviously not as big as maybe the U.S. or even China now, but boy, it it will definitely surpass quick. I mean, there's a lot of cool dynamics there that that they just nail. I mean, they're they're definitely ahead of us in e-commerce for sure, because, you know, everybody's been doing that for probably four or five years longer than we have in, in various different ways that are just super interesting. So and so, I mean, you don't. It sounds like you don't necessarily are specific on a particular type of industry or type of company, just like, as you mentioned, you're a generalist and does being a generalist, does that, does that kind of give you, 
different perspective on like what are common among all these companies? Because one of the things that I've always found is that there's always innovation on the overlap. So you take something from one industry and you put it in another industry that's never seen it or hasn't gone it there yet. The great example is digital health, where you take IT technology and you apply it to the healthcare system, which is you know 30 years behind everything else. Is Has there been these little overlaps where you sort of you found a little nugget of like, oh, well, we did it in this market and now in this market, it's the same or how does how does that process work? Because I got to believe you got kind of a bird's eye view of kind of what's going on. Yeah, it definitely it, it's it's never boring. Um, that's for sure. <laughs> it doesn't sound um, like it. Ringing and, the and, bell, how cool and, is that? <laughs> and well, and it was a virtual bell, which is also just a little weird in the COVID thing. But yeah, um, yeah, yeah. even the virtual bell was cool. But no, I, I I think we're we're because we're very specialized in what we do. But we're generalists in the sense that we work with companies across different sectors and, and industries and geographies. So, you know, mm. kind of all over the world. Right. And so, yeah, there is a sweet spot in there. And I think that sweet spot is really an understanding at the stage of inflection, like that inflection point mm. when a company is about to hit that next level of growth. And then there's some combination that occurs between the market the traction, the growth of the company being accepted by the marketplace and management understanding what they need to do to satisfy those needs, both internally and externally, and then lining the capital up to give them that fuel. Mm-hmm. That's something I've seen over and over now where I can, you know, it's not as tangible, but it's a certain kind of a, uh, you know, in your Venn diagram, right? You've got that middle kind of overlap there that's that sweet spot where it all lines up. So industry sector on one side, you know, the capital and capital marks and management, each being a different part of that Venn diagram. Mm. And right in the middle of there is where growth, uh, market traction, you know, capital and management all kind of come together in a unique way. And so there are these sort of inflection points that you mentioned. Interesting. And we look for them um, because I, I'm, I'm a, you know, our business is a hybrid where we're part merchant bank. So I take equity, hmm. uh, really how I make the majority of, you know, my compensation is through equity. Cause then I really feel like I'm a partner with our companies. Right. And also then we've, we're aligned. I have a shareholder like yours would be a shareholder. And then, right. you know, we're all pulling in the same direction as opposed to just being a hired gun who goes in on a mission and executes and then, you know, is off to the next. Right. So for us, you know, I'm betting on that company being able to reach the market and increase in value. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting to think about. I mean, what are some of these sort of inflection points or if you could give us an example of maybe one that you've, you've done recently where like how it all came together and sort of what, what those inflection points were, because what, what I find with scaling companies. So usually kind of my secret sauce or like where I work the best is, okay, companies got some money, got product market fit. Now they're trying to go to market and they're in the trough of sorrow trying to figure out what is this thing and how do we talk about it? Like it's usually where they call me in and say like, okay, Jari, how do we scale this? Well, how do we go to market? And we see different inflection points there along the way, but I think this is the next level of growth for that. This is gone to market, got some scale, 
it's a healthy business. Now it's like, how do I get to that next level of growth or that next 10 X or whatever? So I think they're sort of different metrics. I'm just curious if there's like some sort of theme between, oh, early stage, go to market, got some traction. Now I'm starting to grow. And then I've now grown, I've plateaued. And then you come in and you're like, well, hey, there's maybe some things we can do to jump to that next level. Is there yeah. anything, anything you can yeah. talk about? Yeah. Like I'll, I'll give, give, you know, well, here's what comes to mind is I'm working with um, a company that is about five, six years now. Uh, of development. They're a pharmaceutical distribution, uh, nutraceutical distribution company. And they spent five or six years uh, building their company. They went from a half million startup to now about 50 million in, in revenue. And during those times of those years, they were break even or even losing money um, based upon building an infrastructure and spending capital expenditures and CapEx to build, you know, warehouse fulfillment, distribution, more licenses, you know, more markets. And they kept building and building, which is really then becomes a barrier of entry. So that becomes a big portion of their, their value prop. And at a certain point I got involved about a year and a half to two years ago, um, we could see that there was more demand from the market than they could supply. So mm. there, there's your, so one, they build an infrastructure Two, there's demand that the company cannot fulfill because it doesn't have the resources, predominantly capital. Mm. So it's now having to go out and get whatever capital it could to fulfill demand, but then that capital is expensive. And then therefore you're trading, you know, a dollar for 99.9 cents. Right. And then you're, you're in this kind of position where I've seen in this particular company, they're ready to move to the next level of growth with putting in capital at a lower cost and giving them the tools to work with to mm. meet the demand. Mm. You start to now have that inflection point. Profitability kicked in, right? We get access to more capital. We replace the expensive money with lower cost capital, mm. giving them more tools to work with. And you know, then you can start to see the hockey stick coming, right? Like, you know, it's, it's fairly, you know, if you step back, you know, Jordan, you look at it then from 10,000 feet, it's easier to spot it when you're an entrepreneur, (laughs) you're in that, you know, that muck every day. uh, And you're just grinding and you're grinding, you know, six days, seven days, 10 hours, 12 hours. I've done it. You know, I've been there. Uh, It's really hard to see it. And yeah. so that's a, it's a really a great question because as any entrepreneurs who hopefully are listening and say, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm in this stuff all the time, but I start to see these things going on. That's when you, you know, you can start to say, wow, we're, we're heading towards an event yeah, and that inflection point. And honestly, it's like a crossroads. I had been there in my business before I sold it, uh, you know, my first company, uh, and I didn't have that experience or that advisor or somebody to say, Hey, here's what's going on. I just kept grinding. I'm a grinder. Yeah, what can yeah, I say? Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. And I made some mistakes. I probably ended up selling the business for a fraction of what it could have been. Or had I known how to restructure it, I might have kept building it and growing it. But I hit a plateau. Yeah. I, I hit a wall, so to speak. <laughs> and um, you know, then I've over the course now of doing this for you know 25 plus years, um, you can see them now almost before they're coming. You know, based on experience. And then we try to prevent mistakes from happening. You know, a big portion of my of my role is to try to prevent the mistakes before they occur, because then you don't have to fix them, and they're costly when you got to fix them afterwards. <laughs> yes, mistakes are costly. Interesting. Yeah. So it's like, 
Cause no, I've, I've had that experience before um, where you're just so in the moment and down in the weeds, you don't see the, the coming tsunami or this huge like disruption happening. And if you don't take advantage, I mean, if you don't, if you don't like pull up and look around, you'll, you'll miss it. And I've seen, I've seen, I've seen companies miss it. I've seen even me, I've missed them a bunch of times because you're just so down in the weeds. And I think what's really interesting is those sort of metrics that you need to use in your business to sort of understand if you're plateauing, uh, you know, where you're at, um, and having some perspective on that, how, how do you, you know, what do you recommend like an entrepreneur or business owner do? I mean, how, what are some of the ways to, you know, other than hiring you, of course, cause you're a great guy, you know, Peter, you're the guy. <laughs> um, what, what are some of the things that you would advise them to do? Like how often should you be looking at certain things that are not directly in your business? Like when do you, should you see the forest through the trees, I guess? It's, 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 it's certainly at a minimum, I would think quarterly, uh, you know, okay. it would be a good place to be able to say, okay, how did I perform? You know, what are the measurements? I'm a big believer that it, 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 there's an old adage, you know, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. Right. 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 I think it was Drucker. I think it was Peter Drucker that did that. It's uh, yeah. kind of, you know, but it really makes sense to me. Like, how are you measuring your performance? So, okay, so you could do it monthly, but monthly is, is a short period. So quarterly to me seems like a right point to say, okay, how did I do? What are the metrics? Uh, and what am I comparing those to? And how have they changed? And how am I going to adjust or adapt? And that's the, the part that you really got to step back and, and look at, okay, as I then look at the metrics and the scorecard, you know, take your sports analogies, Jerry, you're in the sports world every day, yep, yep, you yep. know. It's, it's, it's okay. We'll use halftime. It's an easy one. You know, what's the, what's the score, you know, how's offense, how's defense, how are the players, how's morale, you know, who's hurt, you know, who's strong, you know, what are we, where, where are we falling down against our competitors? Where are we, where are we hitting our stride? You know, all those things, but look at those metrics. Uh, let's call it, you know, quarterly, you know, on a, on a regular basis. Uh, and then how do you adjust your course? And that's really, again, hard to do. It's like, you know, when you're on the playing field all day long. So, you know, having the ability to have some sounding board uh, that you that people that you like and you trust, whether it's, you know, accountants, you know, you get into a networking group or you get into a mastermind group or you bring on a coach, you bring on an advisor. Uh, you know, it's not all about what I do in the capital markets. This is hopefully valuable to, you know, people that are are just entrepreneurs that are building their business. Uh, you know, the same rules apply no matter what. And, and so, you know, th that's just what comes to mind. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Because a lot of times, especially tech entrepreneurs, they just get so down in the weeds on the technology. I mean, again, part of the reason why I have a job is that they can't, uh, they can't really explain what they do. They just do it. Um, and as we know, like half the battle is building it. The other half is selling it. And I had to learn this one the hard way because I'm an engineer by training. So me, sales marketing, that two drink minimum, y'all just like screwing around, right? I'm like, this is really hard. This is like one of the hardest things in the world to do. I never really appreciated it until I had to do it. And then more importantly, how what I saw at a bunch of my companies where we didn't do it, we failed. Like I, I, it was 
it was never going to happen because we were too technology focused or we were a technology looking for a problem or no one could talk about it. No one. So yeah, I mean, I, I think that's the reason why I got all the gray hair in the beard <laughs> because of all those times going, Oh no, you know, and I know Peter, you know, you, no, I don't have any man. hair. I, don't I, don't, have I, I lost all my hair for the same reasons. That's, you <laughs> know, you I, gotta, go. I, I, I get it. But, uh, you know, it's the plight of the entrepreneur of those moments. And, uh, you know, I think that's like the advice that I would always look at, you know, for younger people is, you know, focus on your strengths and then surround yourself with great people that can that can advise you and help you. Uh, because it's too easy to get lost in, in, in the, the muck, if you will. And then get into that situation where you're not able to see outside of, you know, what you're working on day in, day out. And, uh, you know, we all have our unique strengths. We all have our gifts. And most entrepreneurs try to do too much. Mm -hmm. Try to do it all. So true. I can do it better than the next. Or I know. Or I've got, you know, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And a lot of that is ego. A lot of that is also, hey, I don't have the money or the resources to hire, you know, or to do this or to do that. Um, but you'd be amazed, you know, if you really start putting yourself out there and making requests to people. But the message is, you know, focus on your strengths and surround yourself with great people. Do what you do best and then try to have others contribute that you can give the rest away. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's really true. It's hard when you're young to realize that, you know, because of course you can do anything. You probably could do it better. Right. But like which thing are you going to do better of the 20 billion things you have to do? Like you can't do them all better. It's impossible. You can't multitask. Doesn't work. Proven not to work. You just can't like, you can only do one thing at a time, like literally. And it's just funny that you gotta, you gotta get, you gotta get hit in the head with a brick a couple of times to be like, yeah, okay. I finally get it. <laughs> I finally get it. I mean, or, you know, I actually, I'm fascinated by like the fundamentals versus kind of gut feel. Like, of course you do all the math and all the numbers and the quantitative and, you know, the objective measures, but is there a certain like subjective kind of gut feel based on your experience that you just sort of, how far is it? How, how does, how, how much does intuition and gut kind of play in it? And I mean, I know maybe that's a hard question to answer. No, but... it's, it's, it's actually not for me because okay. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, well, I got a big gut, so I guess that <laughs> answers some of your questions. I I, uh, I wasn't gonna. It's always so cool. Oh, it's a pod. Nobody can see, so yeah, I guess I yeah, just gave yeah. it away. You but, gave it away. Um, you could have been like, oh well, six mm, three, two twenty five, right, totally yeah. <laughs> No, I use I use I believe in, in 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 intuition and gut. You know, as a sense, as a driver, it not alone, of course, but I think where right. it works most for me is when there's something that says, mm, something's not right here, something's mm-hmm. off. It's it's not as much that there's the gut of, oh yeah, this all feels right, because I don't want to, I, I need to be in a tangible world that's yeah. analytical and such. Okay, I could love the people I'm working with and it still isn't right, per mm-hmm. se. But where I do trust my gut is, ah, something's off. Something's mm-hmm. just not right. Mm-hmm. Can't always put my fingers on it, can't always nail it at the time, but more often than not, I'd say nine out of 10, uh, that gut is right on. Yeah. And, and, you know, so listening to that and trusting it is not always the easiest. You know, it's like, I could probably write a lot more business mm. if I, if I just had overlooked some of those things, mm. but I just believe that, you know, with, again, with experience that that's going to bite you in the ass somewhere, it may not bite you up yeah. front, yeah. 
But what it, with stuff that I'm working on, you know, if there are skeletons in the closet or there are issues that aren't uh, being disclosed or aren't transparent, uh, you know, those those come out eventually. They come out in a financial audit. They come out in a review. They come out, you know, uh, whether it's the SEC or NASDAQ or the lawyers or investors due diligence. Uh, so I, I, I live in a world where we can't afford uh, to have mistakes because they're detrimental. So, you know, we, we, we kind of, you know, have to balance that uh, gut out. But if something kind of smells wrong, feels wrong, you know, walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, typically there is something there. Yeah. No, I've, I've had that before. I've, I've had those sort of feelings <clears throat> and then didn't do something about it. And then it just ended badly. <laughs> exactly. And yeah, it's always, it's always like something doesn't feel right as opposed to, Oh yeah, this feels, feels good. Because I, you know, I think, I think in my experience, what it is, is like you do a bunch of research and diligence and you, you're, tr- you're trying to create the story in your head and the narrative that makes sense. And then when it doesn't make sense, there's just something inside us and maybe it's experience. Maybe it's just, you know, being a curmudgeon or whatever that you just sit there and you go, this doesn't feel right. Doesn't settle right with me. Then you're like, what is it that I'm worried about? And usually you pulling that thread is then you either get it resolved or you're like, oh, oh, wow. I found the, the, you know, (laughs) I found where the bodies are buried and this isn't going to end well. And it's always good to not, you know, clearly steer clear of that. So, wow. So, you know, what, what sort of advice would you give to the next generation of entrepreneur that's uh, coming up? Certainly, you know, what you're doing, you need to be passionate about. Hmm. And, and combine that passion with your strengths Meaning, you know, if you look at 100% of a, of a pie, you know, maybe the strengths of an entrepreneur are one big slice, you know, 15 or 20% of the pie. Uh, know what those are, understand them, and then leverage them. You know, put those first and foremost, uh, and, and then really look to see where you can apply those, bring in other resources to support everything else except for that, and then go out there and don't, don't stop. You know, it's, it's, you're going to hit walls. You're going to, you know, you're going to fall, you're going to get scars and scabs, but uh, just keep going. Uh, because if you're committed and you have the passion and you know, your strengths, you know, the world's out there for, you know, whatever it is that you want to go out and accomplish. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. I think the more effort you put into it, the more probability of success and the more lucky you are, at least that's what it seems to me. So Peter, I agree. I agree for sure. Yeah, it's been yeah. a pleasure. Yeah, we 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 got to do a whole like just thing on okay, this is what capital means because <laughs> I mean we just a little slice of your world and what how it works and and you know again a lot of entrepreneurs have been asking about this. It's a very important topic. You definitely got to get it right. Don't skimp on this. Like hire a pro because you need to be able to sleep at night and, and yeah, you may be able to do it yourself, but do you really want to make, take that risk? Do you really, do you really want to take that? No, I don't think you do go, go focus on your center of genius. Your what you, your 15% of the pie that you can like completely crush and, and Peter, great to, great to talk. And again, and thank you so much for all your wisdom and uh, stay safe. Thank you, buddy. Look forward to chatting again soon. Be well. 
Thanks, Peter, for being on the show. I had such a great time chatting with you. It was so informative. Just love what you're doing and wish you all the success. So hope uh, we'll see more of the companies that you help go public. So as promised, here are some actionable insights that I learned from my interview with Peter. You need to have passion for what you are doing. Combining your areas of strength with that passion will be your leverage for success. And we hear this all the time. I mean, how many times have we heard our guests say, got to have passion, got to have passion, Um, which I agree with, but you also have to have passion as well as the ability to execute. And I think that's what you got to understand. Do you have the skills to meet the passion? That's really important. Identify areas where you need help or need advice and don't be afraid to ask for it. Again, heard this one before, but it's always good to, uh, you know, exemplify these sort of things and really focus on them because all of this advice is, you see, if you hear it coming constantly and constantly and constantly, it's probably a good idea, right? Taking stock quarterly can help business owners get a wider perspective. Excuse me. Goldstein recommends examining how things are going, looking at the analytics, and then changing course as needed. So a lot of times people will change course too quick, um, maybe you know, weekly, right? If you're an agile type startup, you're like clearly doing things weekly. From a strategic point of view, sometimes that's a little too much thrash. So get a good cadence of when you want to check in. Is that monthly, quarterly, twice a year, whatever it is, and then stick to it. Um, That's actually really good advice to get some sort of perspective on where you're at with your numbers. So there you have it. The actionable insights that I learned from my excellent interview with Peter. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Entrepreneur Ethos Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did creating it. My hope is that you learned something that can make you a little bit better. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do share it with friends and review it on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also join my email list by visiting theentrepreneurethos.com to get my thoughts on what I'm doing to get better as well as what I'm working on. You can also pick up my book, The Entrepreneur Ethos, if you want to learn the traits values, and beliefs that I think we need to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient entrepreneur and, frankly, world community. Feel free to follow me on Twitter at The Daily MBA and let me know if you have any questions or recommendations for a guest you'd like me to talk to. Also, drop me a note if you try anything we talked about on this or any other episode. I'd love to hear what's working for you. Until next time, keep getting better.